Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm John Fensterwald. Co-host Louis Friedberg is tied up today, but he promises he'll return next week. As if a pandemic needed another sideshow, this week the reopening of schools joined the wearing of masks as a partisan and divisive issue with implications for the presidential campaign. President Trump, impatient with the progress towards reopening of schools nationwide, threatened to tie future coronavirus funding to school districts that have reopened with in-person instruction and to exclude money to districts that are teaching students only online. He happened to choose the day that a number of states were setting records in new cases of the coronavirus, and this included California, which also had a record number of deaths from the virus. In response, the California Teachers Association retorted in a letter to Governor Newsom and legislative leaders, Teachers, too, want to be back in class with their students, CTA wrote, but we cannot ignore science facts and safety. California cannot reopen schools unless they are safe. Lewis wrote about this development, and you can catch up on your reading in EdSource, but at least the president is finally talking about increasing federal aid to schools. Later in the podcast, we'll discuss the widely praised naming this week of Michael Drake, the former president of The Ohio State University, to be UC's new president. Higher education reporters Michael Burke and Larry Gordon will fill us in. But first, let's turn to an issue that's high on a very long list of school district worries, a fear of being sued if a student or teacher becomes infected with or transmits the coronavirus. When legislators return from their recess, they'll take up a bill that would provide liability protection from COVID-related lawsuits. To get a district perspective, we have with us Barbara Nemko, who is in her sixth term as Napa County Superintendent of Schools. She served on former State Superintendent Tom Torlickson's Task Force for Great Schools and has been honored for her work extending technology to schools. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Barbara, how worried are districts about being sued for an infection either by a student or a teacher? Uh, What are they telling you whether it factors in their decisions whether to reopen in the fall? I think it's not top of mind at this moment because there's so much going on and things are changing so rapidly in terms of what our plans are going to be. But if you mention it, yes, uh, they are very worried because as we all know, it can cost you half a million dollars to be in litigation for a frivolous lawsuit that you win. So if we get tied up in litigation with everything else that we have going on, that would be a tremendous disservice to kids. It will take our focus away from what we should be doing. Well, what's your advice to districts then in order to protect themselves? Well, you follow the guidelines, which is what we're all doing. We've been working very, very hard to make sure that we're doing what our public health officers are telling us. There's conflicting guidance, as you know. Everybody has given guidance, and they're all almost exactly the same, except for the places where they're not. And in this world, the devil's in the details. So you know that there will always be something that somebody will point to if they decide they want to sue. And this is a very litigious society. That's why we're asking the state to help us. Yeah. Do you tell them, though, to go by their county advice over everything else? Yes, that's the best thing that we can do because we're such a diverse state in every way that you have to go by the conditions in your own county. 
So what are you and what are they looking for from the state? Some protection against litigation. So the limited liability, AB 1384, by Assemblyman Patrick O'Donnell, is a wonderful start. It's the beginning of this bill's process to get passed, and it gives us limited liability. Obviously, if the school district has been grossly negligent, that's a different story. But if we're following all of the guidelines, people need to understand we have kids, we will have kids in school for less than 25% of the time. We're going to do all the things and all the guidelines that we have been preparing for. We don't have them the other 75% of the time, where they may be at family parties, barbecues, whatever. And you don't only catch COVID in schools. Clearly, you catch it every other place. So why should we be the deep pockets? So if your advice is if you follow the rules and this bill passes, you should be safe? Yes, perfectly said, John. If the bill passes and we follow the rules, we should be safe. We've been speaking with Napa County Superintendent of Schools, Barbara Nemco. Thank you, Barbara. You're so welcome. Thank you. So now let's turn to an attorney to get the skinny on the legal issues and the risks that school districts may face. We have on the line Sarah Sutherland, an attorney in the San Diego office of a law firm, Dennis, Wellover, and Kelly. She works in the firm's students and special education practice groups and is experienced and knowledgeable on the subject we're talking about today. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. So how worried should school districts be that they'll be sued over coronavirus infections supposedly contracted in school? There is certainly quite a bit of worry, and I think the worry should be in many ways confined by the difficulty it takes for a plaintiff to actually prove the damages that were associated with the alleged injury. School districts certainly need to be mindful of their obligations for students and teachers. And if someone gets sick and sues them, they should be prepared to defend that. So should a fear of a lawsuit be a factor in their decision whether to reopen school? Yes and no. I think the fear, no, but the reality that's likely to happen, yes. And as an attorney, I often am put in a position of picking a plaintiff, particularly when you're looking at a public agency. And so the the thought should be in their mind, but it does not, it should not fear them from attempting their mission. So districts are clearly under orders to spend a lot of money cleaning schools, practicing social distancing, wearing masks. Aren't those steps good enough? I think that they are ultimately good enough to defend against a lawsuit. However, there are two, you know, very real factors that mitigate that. The first is that nothing prevents the lawsuit from being filed. So the cost of defense is certainly real. And the second thing is that those guidelines are not objectively agreeable and they're changing frequently. And so I do think following the guidelines, opening with the guidelines is defensible. One of the issues is that there's conflicting guidance from the county, the state, the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatricians. Whose advice do you follow? And do you have to worry that if you don't follow one or all somehow, then you leave yourself open to a suit? There is an order of things in the law in the same way that there is in school districts and many of other agencies. And so we have statutes that are laws and then government orders that are taking the force of law because we are in an emergency and we have regulations that also take the force of law in emergency, but the guidelines are just that. And the issue is gonna become whether or not the district followed or was negligent in not following. 
those guidelines. And so to the extent the district can defend themselves by showing we followed the state guidelines and local health orders that had the force of law, there is not a conflict. To what extent is a slip up allowed? In other words, you know, kids will be kids. They'll take off a mask or maybe a social distancing may be violated. You know, to what extent would a court say, well, you know, you tried? The trying goes to a key element that is missing in most of the COVID threats, which is causation. And in order for a plaintiff to obtain money or damages from a defendant, they must prove that defendant caused their injury and the harm they're seeking. And with COVID, that is going to be a difficult, like you said, the schools and workplace is typically where we get infected, where we get sick, because the world is a, is a dirty place. Um, and so any plaintiff would have to connect the damage from getting sick to a negligent act of the district. And that can be done by virtue of showing failure to follow a law or a regulation and not necessarily guidelines. Uh, I think the other real important thing for districts to think about is to be able to articulate how they were not negligent and so how they met that duty to ensure they were safe. Of course, there's outlandish things that can happen, but if they can reasonably articulate, we followed local health guidelines uh, and they got sick anyway, they are not likely to be negligent. And of course, I'm glad you mentioned teachers because they obviously will be the adult most susceptible to it. And some of them may have health risks of their own. To what extent does that enter into this equation? We're very worried about getting students there and students learning, but we're not thinking as much about what it means for the adults responsible and being paid by taxpayers to do that. And we do have a very aging teacher population in California. We also have four generations of teachers in the classroom right now between 25 and 75, um, which is a very different time period than we've ever experienced in public education. And so ultimately, the age of the workforce and their need to be accommodated must be dealt with and is more likely to be dealt with, I think, through workers' comp and health insurance versus the uh, negligence and supervision type claims that would come from students. Finally, there's a bill that will be sponsored by Patrick O'Donnell. He chairs the Assembly Education Committee and his bill, 1384, when the legislature takes it up, would provide some liability protection. How might it work and how much protection would it provide? Yes, I I think it's a um, very laudable effort. And I I would encourage school districts, teachers and their legislatures to really seriously think about this issue because the fear of reopening, I think, is stopping a lot that could otherwise happen if the fear could be mitigated. Bills such as AB 1384 would go a long way to mitigate that. Ultimately, a judge would decide what those liability protections were, but what the bill would accomplish is it would allow a school district defendant to say, we opened in compliance with state and local health orders, and so we cannot be sued if you got sick. We've been speaking with Sarah Sutherland from the law firm Dennis, Wolliver, and Kelly, an attorney the districts hope they won't need anytime soon. Thanks, Sarah. It's been an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much. This week, the regents of the University of California unanimously voted to appoint Michael Drake to succeed Janet Napolitano as the next president. Drake, who will be UC's first black president, has been rumored to be among the finalists, so it wasn't a surprise. And the timing is right. He just completed his presidency of Ohio State University. 
Joining us to talk about the news of the week are EdSource Higher Ed reporters Michael Burke and Larry Gordon. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, John. Hi, John. Michael, tell us about President Drake, why he was high on the list, and summarize his resume for us. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, he comes from Ohio State, where he was the president since 2014. And I think that was a big part of the, the reason that he was hired was that he has the perspective of an outsider, but also of someone who's been inside the UC system. Obviously, the last six years, he's been at Ohio State. But before that, he was you know, at UC for many years, both in the, the central president's office, where he was the vice president for health affairs, and, and then he was the, the chancellor at UC Irvine for several years. So I think that mix and, you know, his very strong resume and, you know, he's also credited at, at Ohio State of increasing graduation rates and retention rates to, you know, all-time highs there. And, and he also touted the increase in the number of black students that were admitted at Ohio State while he was in charge there, which I think is just another reason, you know, his background in, in promoting racial equity was, I think, also another thing that was attractive to the regions. So you talked with some higher ed leaders and even a, and a student leader as well. What was their take on, on Drake? Uh, generally pretty positive. People are pretty encouraged. You know, the activist groups or advocate groups like the Campaign for College Opportunity, they were very encouraged. You know, they kind of, you know, they're all about access to, to higher ed and, and they seem to think that he has a strong background in, in promoting access and equity. The students also, you know, I, I talked to the president of the UC Student Association. They seem optimistic. I think they're sort of waiting to see if Drake follows through on, on some of his promises. They said that, you know, he had a conversation with student leaders and confirmed his commitment to things like equity and inclusion and accessibility um, and college affordability. And so, you know, they're, they're optimistic, I think, but definitely it seems like they're waiting to see if he follows through on that. And, you know, also people in the higher ed leaders in the assembly, like uh, Jose Medina, also seem generally pretty encouraged based on the statements they put out. So he takes over in August. It's a tough time to take over that job. Uh, list some of the reasons that he's going to face some difficulties. Well, the obvious one, um, or one of the obvious ones, is the coronavirus pandemic, which has really just upended everything in higher ed classes. Instruction has just been greatly impacted. Classes obviously were online in the spring as of March, and in the fall, it's looking more and more like the vast majority, if not all classes, will be online. The system's budget, it's facing a lot of uncertainty. If Congress doesn't come through with more stimulus relief, they're, they're facing you know almost 500 million in cuts. And then on top of the pandemic, you know, there's been this nationwide reckoning over racism and specifically anti-black racism and, you know, universities, along with all other institutions, have sort of had to, you know, re-examine their own practices and recognize where they fall short. And students across the system are obviously going to be demanding a lot. And you've already seen that in some cases. So, you know, that's going to be something that Dr. Drake will also need to address. Has he spoken out on this issue, Michael? Obviously, he's the first black president at UC. So, He's talked about experiencing racism in his own personal life, and, and that's something that, you know, no other UC president, being that they were all white in the past, have, have had to deal with. So that gives him certainly a different experience. But he hasn't spoken specifically to some of the specific things that, at least as far as I've seen, that constituents across the UC system have raised. You know, students in the Academic Senate have recently called for a reform to the system-wide police force. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how he tackles those issues when he's actually in the job. Larry, you've been covering higher ed for uh, a long time. How does this appointment, how does this selection fit into past selections of the president? Well, it's interesting. It seems like it's a return to an older pattern. Janet Napolitano, the previous UC president, 
was definitely a left field choice. She had come to the university from being the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, and before that was the governor and attorney general of Arizona. She was much more of a political person, you know, while, you know, a very, very accomplished person. She was seen as somebody who could mainly deal with the legislature and almost be a peer with the governor. She was not seen as a pure academic. Prior to her, many people had been real intellectuals, had been physicists, had been various scholars. And, you know, she was not that. And I have to say that, you know, some of the faculty never quite felt comfortable with her for the first few years. Some of them even resented her. And at the same time, I think in the beginning, her experiences of being a politician maybe backfired. Some people thought that she was coming in, you know, too arrogant and knowing too much. She got in trouble once or twice with the legislature. So this is more back to somebody who has deep experience as an academic administrator. And also with Dr. Drake, it's really important now. I mean, Michael noted this. You know, he had been the VP at UC of all the health system, which means running this enormous chain of five medical centers, many clinics, just billions and billions of dollars in federal aid, everything from Medicaid to NIH grants and now COVID research. So he really knows that stuff. Yeah, you forget that uh, so much of UC is, goes well beyond uh, just the academic portion of undergraduate. Uh, I think the health center budgets dwarf the actual undergraduate education budgets. Well, that brings another question. You remind us what a president of UC does. I mean, the chancellors do most of the heavy lifting, right? Or am I wrong? You know, it, it's kind of a mix. There is this balance. UC is extremely complicated institution with a lot of different constituencies. And, and you know, the administration is mainly on the campuses, but the money is from the legislature and federal government. And for that, the president of the university is the main point person. And the chancellors can make raise some of their own private money, but the president is really the person who goes head to head with the governor, with the speaker of the assembly, and the state senate. Can you remember a time when a president is taking over at at, at such a difficult moment? I really can't. It's almost like a perfect storm of you know money problems, health problems, um, things like that, and um, you know the racial issues as well. And I, I just can't. A lot of times, things have been very kind of peaceful handoff. The other thing is there had been a longer period of handoff, too. You know, this is pretty quick. I mean, he, you know, he's going to hand off in like three weeks. Sometimes the lame duck stays on for four months or so. Well, thank you, Michael and Larry. Appreciate your insights. We'll certainly be following his tenure. Well, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thank you, Kobe. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Swiss's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to our podcasts. I'm John Fensterwald. Stay safe. Be well. We'll be back next week.